why Adam is praying for me. I taught Adam how to preach. <laughs> and uh, he took his, his homiletics class from me, and uh, when he got ready to do his first sermon, uh, we prayed for everybody, and so he's just reciprocating now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and so forth. I have one really weird thing I have to do uh, before I begin. And uh, you all know how much your preacher, Greg, loves social media, right? So, um, gonna do a quick selfie. Everybody wave on three. One, two, three. Okay. I'll post that on Greg's Facebook page a little later and, uh, and so forth. Uh, he, of course, is in Tennessee with his lovely wife and visiting their daughter at Johnson University. And uh, so um, he kind of asked if I would uh, step in today. You've been exploring the issue of doubt. You've been doing it for two weeks now. We come to the third week. And you have been assured throughout this that Christianity has room for doubt. Now, when you think about it, it really does make sense that Christianity would have room for doubt. By its very nature, Christianity opens the door to doubt. A great preacher of the 20th century, uh, last century, isn't that fun to say? You know, back last century. Um, and, and I was there, but... It, I'm sorry, I, I'm, yes, I'm old enough to have lived in the last century. But a, a preacher by the name of Chuck Swindoll, one that many of you may be somewhat familiar with, made a rather uh, interesting declaration about the nature of Christianity. And this is what he said. When you stop and think about it, the Christian really is a rare breed. The world outside of Christ does not understand us and perhaps has good reason not to. We feel supreme love for one we've never seen. We listen closely to one who never speaks. We entrust our destiny into the hands of one we've never met. We die so that we can live. We forsake so that we can have, we surrender so that we can conquer. We see the invisible, we hear the inaudible, we believe the unbelievable. We are a bit strange. But are we as Christians all that strange? Think about it for me with a moment. There may be room for doubt in the Christian life, but just by being alive, just by being a human being, we place ourselves smack dab in the middle of doubt. Every day, we hear things and see things that express doubt. We're told that what we heard is not really what we heard. But this is what was said. 
Oftentimes, you know, we are told that seeing is believing. And, uh, you know, I wonder, is that really true? I'm going to show you just in a moment some pictures, some drawings. These drawings are shared in every introduction to psychology class. Every psychology professor loves to use these pictures. So let's look at this first one. Is it a duck or a rabbit? How about the next one? Old lady or young lady? Can you see them both? Or this? A horse or a frog on a lily pad? Now, everybody, as I said, you know, it, it gets into our, our heads. Just what is it that I'm seeing? Psychology professors show these pictures just to get you all perplexed and upset and make you see that what you see is not what everybody else sees. Doubt is introduced into our lives all the time. It's part and parcel of human existence. Now, I'm not complaining. I, I'm just saying life without doubt would be a whole lot smoother, right? Are you with me? Can I get an amen? amen? All right, it would be a whole lot simpler if there were no doubt. And that's probably, you know, why we try and fight doubt so hard, especially when it comes to faith. Aren't we taught that um, faith is the opposite of doubt? In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is commending his readers for the faith they have in the midst of some rather troubling times. And I know, want you to notice how he describes this faith. He uses these words. You have not seen Christ, but still you love him. You cannot see him now, but you believe in him. So you are filled with an inexpressible joy that cannot be explained. A joy full of glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I would like those words to be true of me and my faith all the time. But unfortunately, it hasn't always turned out like that. So I'd like for you to do me a favor this morning. I'd like for you to take out your umbrella of grace. Go ahead, take out your umbrella. I brought mine with me, okay? And we're going to go ahead and open it up in honor of Greg Taylor, my Illini. Now, have you put your umbrella up? I haven't seen many umbrellas going up. Come on, okay. All right, I, I'm, I teach college. I expect, you know, I, kids do weird things, so feel free, okay? Now, the reason why I want you to put up the umbrella of grace, and I'm sure the building is not going to collapse, okay, uh, because after all, this is just a superstition, you know, that you put up an umbrella in a building and it's going to collapse. But, you know, I believe that when the umbrella of grace is up, it allows us the opportunity 
to be honest with one another. The majority of us in this room, I am sure, love Jesus Christ deeply. Even though not one of us has actually ever seen him. But since the umbrella of grace is up, and we're trying to be transparent, I need to share with you that I have found myself in situations where I wanted to, you know, just say, Lord, help my unbelief. I have felt like that father in the gospel story who has a sick child. And Jesus tells him, if you will believe, I can heal your daughter. And he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. These are words of doubt. He's saying, I've heard about you, and I've heard that you can do some really miraculous and stupendous things. But I've never actually seen anybody do what, you, what I'm asking you to do for my daughter. So forgive me if I have a smidge of doubt. That's really what's behind those words. Now, this man is having what we might call as a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And I wonder what your life is like when you're in the midst of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Are you saying at that moment, as you go through your Bible and you look at the promises that are contained there, and you're seeing that these promises seem to offer things that don't seem possible at all in the midst of your situation, if you're saying, Lord, help my unbelief here. Mr. Barnes had been a farmer all of his life. He believed in working hard. He believed in being a good neighbor. And he wanted to treat his neighbor as he himself would like to be treated. Mr. Barnes loved his Bible. He loved to read it, and he loved to cling to the promises that he found in Scripture. And there was a particular promise that he found in the Bible that he clung to. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Mr. Barnes knew that he had trained his son in such a manner. His son had been in church, had seen his father provide loving leadership in the church and in the community. But even now as he lies on his deathbed, his son does not return. Does not return to make things right. Mr. Barnes passed away. The funeral came and went with family members looking wistfully around the room and at the edge of the crowd gathered at the cemetery, hoping that they could catch a glimpse of the prodigal son. But alas, the prodigal son never, never showed up. And this father died with an unfulfilled promise that ultimately split the family. This man's family was in the midst of a terrible, horrible, no good, 
very bad day. I share this story with you because there are those who would look at this story and hear me say, what did you expect? The Bible really can't help because it's full of myths and mistakes. It's not a holy book, they would suggest. It's a book written by human authors who are committed to kind of a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by philosophy. There's no God, so there can be no divine book that can make any real and lasting difference when those terrible, horrible, no-good, very-bad days pounce on you. When we hear people question the validity of the Bible, and we compare that to the circumstances that we find ourselves in, it's inevitable that we would experience a moment or two of doubt. In fact, that's why some question the Bible and assert that there's no real good reason to believe it. Hear me, these people are not in a moment of doubt. Those who say these things are speaking as if they have already judged and found the scripture to be guilty. They don't believe in a Bible because they don't believe in a God. And they're not questioning the Bible, they're just simply discounting it to us. They're sitting, setting it aside, but the truth is, is that their certainty, in combination with our circumstances, can cause even the most faithful among us to wonder, why did God's promise not come true for Mr. Barnes? Why did his son not return? Now, remember that my umbrella of grace is actually still up. Have you ever, come on now, be honest, have you ever wondered why the things that are contained here in the Scripture seem like pie in the sky by and by? Is it possible? Is it possible that the Bible is not all that it's cracked up to be. Now, I need you to listen slowly for a few moments. You can think faster than I can talk, and I don't want you to race ahead of me for a few minutes. I need for you to stay right here with me. I want you to think about King David. King David is described in the Old Testament after a man, a man after God's own heart. The kind of man that made God proud. But David, this man after God's own heart, is a doubter. When you read the Psalms, the majority of which were written by King David, you cannot help but discover that the, the Psalms are songs, poems, that are raw with doubt. Look with me at Psalm 13. How long will you forget me, Lord? Whoa, 
How long will you forget me? How long will you hide from me? How long must I worry and feel sad in my heart? All day? How long will my enemy win over me? Lord, look at me. Answer me, God. Tell me, or I will die. Did you hear the frustration? The frustration comes because David is wrestling with the fact that the promises that he knew from his Bible. What David had as a Bible were the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapters 29 and 30, Moses is sharing instruction with the Israelites. He's telling them if they will be faithful to God... God will be faithful to them, and their lives are going to be marked by blessing. Their lives will be marked by victory. Their lives will be marked by the protection of God. But in whatever circumstance that prompted this prayer, David is having trouble finding the promise being fulfilled. And his frustration is accompanied with this doubt. Will God actually step in and do something? The doubt that David is experiencing is the same doubt that the family of Mr. Barnes was experiencing. Perhaps you have been, or inevitably will be, in a place where you're dealing with doubt and frustration. And since the umbrella of grace is still up, I'm just going to be real honest with you. I've been there. I have doubted. I have wondered if the Bible is, is just a feel-good book. Is it a feel-good book for those who want to live in the land of fairy tales and myths? I have longed for the promises of God's word to wrap me up like a blanket in warmth and comfort. I have wanted to, at times, in the midst of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, to sing out at the top of my lungs a song I learned when I was that tall. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I wanted to sing it with gusto, but alas, the doubt silenced me. It held me firmly in its grip. So perhaps you're wondering, what do we do? What do we do when doubt grips us with a chokehold? Is this kind of doubt about the scripture ever able to be overcome? Can we really believe the Bible's promises, or is it, as they have said, a book full of mistakes and myths? Did David 
In the midst of all his frustration, did David ever move from a place of doubt to assurance? And the answer is a resounding yes. He did move from doubt to assurance. So what was his secret? Did he just believe without any evidence? Or did he come to some reason for believing? Well, it's in the 119th Psalm that we actually find a path from doubt to assurance. The 119th Psalm is viewed as a masterpiece of Hebrew poetry. Now, you may know it as the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses. But the theme of the 119th Psalm is one thing. It is all about how a relationship with the Scriptures, as they knew it, brought about a relationship with God. Now, as you look at the 119th Psalm, your Bible may have some squiggly little marks and an odd-looking word at the top of eight-verse sections. The reason for that is, is that each section of the uh, 119th Psalm begins with a, a Hebrew letter in the alphabet. Every verse in that section begins with the letter A in the first eight verses the letter B in the next verses. You get the idea. And so it's been called the chapter that it presents to us the Christian ABCs. Now, what do we learn when we look at this particular passage of Scripture? Essentially, and I'm just going to bring this down into a nutshell for you, I get to teach for three hours at Lincoln at a time and I was just wishing that Greg would let me have all three hours. I'm kidding. We all got to get to the pork festival. But what we'll find here in the 119th Psalm is that David believes in the validity of God's word because he's in a relationship with God's word. Think about that for a moment. He believes in the validity of the promises found in God's Word because he's in a relationship with God's Word. And so I'm suggesting to you that the path from doubt to assurance comes from being in a relationship with a book. Are you wrestling with that concept? It's easy to be in a relationship with Adam. I see him. I hear him. He talks back to me more than he should. It's easy to be in a relationship with somebody, but is it easy to be in a relationship with a book? But as you read the 119th Psalm, you will discover that the author of that psalm, David or another uh, individual, is in a deep relationship with the Word of God. And this relationship is strong even in the midst of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. If you want a strong relationship 
with the Bible, you need an attitude like that found in the 119th Psalm. So, what does that look like? In the first eight verses, the A section, or Aleph, we discover confidence. The author is talking about confidence and a commitment a commitment to be in relationship with the Scriptures. The confidence in the Scriptures produces a longing in him to be obedient to the Scriptures. Verses 5 and 6 say this, Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. The desire of this portion of the poem is that we would be committed to obedience to the Scriptures. You see, when we lack commitment, doubt barges in. But when we are committed to the Scriptures and we're committed to spending time in the Scriptures, when we're committed to put into practice what we find in the Scriptures, we are now doing battle with the doubt and moving to a place of assurance. In the second section, and I'm not going to go through all 22, relax. In the second section, verses 9 through 16, we see that the one who loves the Scripture actually takes time to memorize the Scripture. In verse 11, we read, and perhaps many of you have read this, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I want you to catch the linkage. The psalm writer says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. What he's doing is linking together the word and the author. He's indicating that he's committed to the word and at the same time committed to the author. This is uh, no casual commitment. This is a commitment that seeks to develop space in his mind and in his heart for the word of God. These ancient words were important enough for him to take the time to commit them to memory. Now, why would someone take that kind of time to memorize these words? What creates that kind of commitment? Well, the answer is in the very next section. Verses 14 through 16, we read this. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Here, our lover of the scripture describes a relationship with the scriptures that's characterized by value, commitment, and joy. He rejoices in God's word because he's convinced of its value. And later in verse 40, he's going to say, how I long for your precepts. When's the last time? When is the last time you longed to read your Bible? In this age of doubt and skepticism, building a relationship with a book is difficult. 
But if we would use the song of Psalm 119 as a template, we will see that building a relationship with Scripture means we are building a relationship with the author. Here is the wonder of this book. When I read it, when I open it up and begin to read it, when I memorize it, the author knows I'm doing it. I have a favorite author. I have several of his books, and I've spent multiple hours reading them, and I've read several of them more than one time. But that author doesn't have a clue as to how much time I spend reading and sharing his ideas with others. The author is clueless. But the author of Scripture actually knows when I open up the book. He knows when I'm reading it. And he's pleased that it's on my phone and on my iPad and on my computer and that I carry a copy with me. He's pleased by that. And every time I'm in it, he knows that I'm in it. And as I spend time with it, I'm spending time with God. Do I still doubt God's word? Not for a long, long time. I have gone from just reading my Bible and puzzling over what it means to letting it help me understand God and myself. If you were to ask me why I don't doubt, I would simply tell you I'm in relationship. I'm in relationship with my Bible. It is a relationship that has brought me serenity and comfort even in the worst of the terrible horrible, no good, very bad days. I have found that whatever circumstance I'm in, as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, I can be content. Do I need proof that the Bible is not a hoax, that its message is not corrupted because of all the mistakes? The Bible and I have been together long enough now that it has proven itself to me. Do I wonder if it's a book of myths and as such a work of fiction? My answer is no longer. And we're going to talk about that in the next hour. The best cure to doubt is simply this. It comes from being in a relationship with the Bible. And if you want to know more about what that relationship looks like, I challenge you to the 22-day challenge. Take 22 days and read each one of the sections of Psalm 19 and ponder what it means. If you do, you will come to the conclusion. Words of life, words of hope. Give us strength, help us cope. In this world, where'er we roam, ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. Father, I thank you for a word that we can have confidence in. I thank you that I can be in relationship with you through a book, and that this book is rock solid. And I pray for my friends gathered here today. I pray that their confidence in their Bible is not just wishful thinking, but that it comes because they too 
are in a deep and abiding relationship with the Word of God. For those who are not, Father, I pray that you will challenge them. I pray that they will take the 22-day challenge and, and just begin to read what a relationship with the Word looks like. We thank you, our Father, again for your words, ancient words that are ever true. In Jesus' name, amen.